Up to this point in our study of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew, the story of the life of Jesus as told by Matthew, up to this point we have read about the family tree of Jesus, the birth and the early childhood of Jesus, John the Baptist preparing the way for the coming of Jesus' public ministry, the tempting and testing of Jesus prior to his public ministry, and then the early days of his public ministry, including the calling of his first disciples to follow him. Today, we begin looking at some of the things that Jesus taught. We're in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and there's this extended teaching segment that runs from Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 that has come to be called the Sermon on the Mount. If you have a red letter print Bible, you will note that this is the largest continuous red letter section in your Bible. In other words, this is the longest continuous teaching by Jesus recorded in the Bible itself. No other religious discourse in the history of humanity has attracted more attention and produced more discussion than the Sermon on the Mount, both among Christians and non-Christians alike. This is especially true of the opening verses of the sermon, which have come to be known as the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are comprised of just ten short verses, but it seems that the fewer the words spoken by Jesus, the greater the license people have taken with what those words mean. We pray the Lord will help us to not do that, but we will stick to the text and let the Holy Spirit guide us in what it actually means. All right, so let's begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he, t- and he began to teach them. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, the crowds being talked about here are the crowds that Matthew described for us in Matthew 4, 23 through 25. We looked at these verses last time, but I think it will help set the context for us if we read this passage again in Matthew 4, 23. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Jesus has been traveling throughout the Galilean region, teaching and caring for people's needs. He has healed hundreds, maybe thousands of people of all kinds of diseases, physical and spiritual maladies. Word has spread quickly about this miracle worker in Galilee. People are traveling great distances to see him. For those who are suffering, they are hoping to be cured. For others, they are hoping to see Jesus in action. They're hoping to witness a real live miracle. Thousands of people are gathering whenever his location is discovered. People are pressing in, trying to catch sight of him. Jesus is caring for people from early in the day to late into the evening. The breadth and the depth of human need seems to be 
endless as people just keep coming and coming and coming to Jesus. As Jesus looks out over these huge crowds of people, he makes his way up a mountainside in the area, sits down, and he begins to teach his disciples. It says he went up on a mountainside. What determines if something is a mountain or a hill is one's perspective, I suppose, because what is called a mountain in Israel is considered a hill by us who are living in the shadow of the Sierra Nevada mountains. Nothing in Israel is a mountain for us who live where we do. For us, it would be more accurate to say that he went up a hillside. And he sat down. Sitting down was the typical position that a teacher would assume when they taught in that time and culture. When a teacher sat down, it indicated that class was in session, so to speak. The exact location of where this teaching took place is not known. Jesus is probably back in the vicinity of Capernaum again. There is a Roman Catholic church called the Church of the Beatitudes located near Capernaum on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee, which is the traditional location for where Jesus taught the sermon. Here are some photos of that church and the hillside to give you some perspective of where this event might have taken place. In that picture there, you can see the, go back to the first one, you can see the hillside there and it overlooks down onto the Sea of Galilee is what that water there, and over to the, let's see, to the right of where that is, was, is where the town of Capernaum is situated. Now this here shot is from the other side of the Sea of Galilee, looking across, and you can see the church up there on the top of that hill, and the hillside is leading down. This is a possible location of where the Sermon on the Mount was taught, we don't know, but it was a place similar to this if this wasn't the exact place. And obviously, none of those buildings and all of that stuff was there in the days of Jesus. It says his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. It's helpful for us to keep in mind that Jesus is teaching his disciples here rather than giving a directive to the world at large in the Sermon on the Mount. It's also apparent from what is said in these opening words that Jesus is speaking to all of his disciples, not just a select subset. As such, if you are a Christian, a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and we talked last week that all three of those things are the same thing, then what Jesus is teaching here is for you and for me. Some general remarks about the Sermon on the Mount uh, as just by way of kind of introduction so that we have a better understanding of this teaching is as I mentioned in the introductory remarks for the Gospel of Matthew itself, Matthew doesn't always present the material in his book in a strict chronological order. Instead, there are times when he arranges things around a common theme or topic and the Sermon on the Mount is a place where he has done that. 
the Sermon on the Mount was most likely not taught at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, even though Matthew has located it near the beginning of his book. Matthew puts this extended teaching passage near the beginning of the book because of its importance, not necessarily because, of that's, because that is when it actually occurred. There's a shorter but similar extended teaching in Luke chapter 6, verses 17 through 49, which has come to be called the Sermon on the Plain. So this is the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and the one in Luke is called the Sermon on the Plain. Bible scholars are not certain if these two are different accounts of the same occasion of teaching, or if they are two different occasions which have a lot of the same material in them. If we compare the two passages, we will notice many similarities. Many of the same things are in both sermons, but we'll also notice a number of differences between them. And interestingly, most of the stuff that is in Matthew's sermon that is not included in Luke's sermon is found in other places in the Gospel of Luke. So one explanation that makes some good sense is that Jesus probably taught many of the same things again and again at various places that he went. So what we have in Matthew and Luke are sermons from two different occasions which both contain a number of the common things that Jesus taught wherever he went. In this sermon, Jesus is not describing what is necessary to get into the kingdom of God. This is not a qualifications list for being saved. There is not a human being who has ever lived other than Jesus Christ himself who has or could live up to the standard of holiness that Jesus describes in this sermon. If this is the set of checkboxes that you need to hit in order to get into heaven, you and I are not getting there. The standard of moral righteousness found in the Sermon on the Mount is otherworldly. It is higher, stricter, more difficult than what is found in the Old Testament law of Moses which itself is a moral code that no one other than Jesus has ever lived up to perfectly. This is an impossible ideal that none of us can live up to in this life. In fact, we read some of the things said here in this sermon and our minds can start going bonkers trying to work out how it could be carried out in the world that we live in. The way for us to see the Sermon on the Mount is as the ideal that we, as his followers, are aspiring to, while also recognizing that it will not be fully realized in us until Jesus comes back and establishes his kingdom. At that time, we will be changed, and our new nature will be fully realized, and with Jesus as king, the righteousness of Jesus will fill the land. Now, by saying that, we're not making excuses for our failure to live up to this ideal, nor are we giving ourselves wiggle room to ignore these ethical imperatives. It's an acknowledgement of our brokenness as human beings and a reminder of where our hope is. Our hope is not in ourself and our religious and moral performance. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, our Savior.
these are the ethics of the kingdom of God. These are the ideals we are to seek to follow in our life as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, as a disciple of Jesus. And this is the kind of world that we are looking forward to when Jesus is king. What will the world be like when Jesus comes back and establishes himself as king over all? The world will be like this. What is described here in the Sermon on the Mount will be the kingdom of Jesus. I've heard people say things like, if everyone followed the teaching of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount, it would be a paradise. There would be no more war. There would be no longer uh, people being abused and taken advantage of. There would be no stealing or lying or cheating or killing. There would be no unmet needs among people. There would be equality and justice for everyone. And indeed, it would be. And one day it will be true. With Jesus as our King and the Holy Spirit fully forming in us the, tr the new nature of Jesus Christ, and we look forward to that day, we pray for that day. Well, a basic outline of the Sermon on the Mount goes something like this. We're talking here about Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. Verses 3 through 12 of chapter 5 are referred to as the Beatitudes. Verses 13 through 16 are the salt and light metaphors. Together, they form the introduction for this teaching. Then verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5 is the main thesis or summary statement for the sermon, which says the righteousness required of Jesus' followers is to exceed that of those who follow the law of Moses in the Old Testament, Jesus has not come to abolish the law and the prophets of the Old Testament, but to fulfill them, to complete them, to fully realize them and their purpose. Verses 21 through 48 of chapter 5 then contrasts the greater righteousness of Jesus with the righteousness that... Uh, uh, it contrasts the greater righteousness of Jesus with the righteousness described by the law and the prophets found in the Old Testament. Matthews chapter 6, verse 1 through 7.23 contrasts true and false religious devotion in various spheres of life. And then finally, Matthew 7, 24 through 27 concludes the teaching with Jesus saying that the person who puts his words into practice is like a wise person who builds their house on a firm foundation of bedrock. So for us, let's make the teachings of Jesus the foundation of our life. Today we're going to look at what is called the Beatitudes which is verses 3 through 12. These opening words of Jesus' teaching have come to be referred to as the Beatitudes. The word Beatitudes does not appear in the Bible. It comes from the Latin word Beatus, which means blessed, which comes from the beginning phrase of each of these statements. It says, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. This is where the word beatitude comes from. You may have heard someone say that these are the attitudes of the kingdom of God. Uh, that's a clever way of playing off the word beatitudes, but the word attitude really is not part of the meaning of the word beatitude at all. 
the word translated blessed, which is the word beatitude, literally means happy, fortunate, to be congratulated, well off, favored by God. The basic structure of each of these Beatitudes has two parts. The first part identifies a particular kind of person, and then the second part states the promised blessing that is theirs. Before diving into these Beatitudes, I want to remind us again one more time that Jesus is speaking to his disciples, not the world at large, in these Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are spoken to his followers as words of comfort and encouragement. Verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy, fortunate are the poor in spirit. Jesus is not referring simply to those who are poor materially or lacking in skill or resource in some way. He says the poor in spirit, those who are empty before God, as one commentator puts it, Simply being poor materially is not an attribute that gets a person into the kingdom of God, but those who are poor materially certainly have fewer distractions from having this frame of mind, this attitude, this understanding, this awareness of their dependence on God for their well-being. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their poverty their need, their powerlessness, their lack, and they are in turn turning to God as their provider. They are desperate for God's rescue and his provision. Being poor in spirit is essential for us to receive from the Lord. The promised, the promised blessing is theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, a quick side note right here. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are synonymous terms in the Gospels. Matthew, he tends to use the term kingdom of heaven, while Mark and Luke tend to use the term kingdom of God. They mean the same thing in the Gospels, kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God. These are God's people. These are the ones who are welcomed into and make up the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. These are the ones who will share in the inheritance of God's Son. The riches of heaven are theirs, those who are poor in spirit. This was a tremendous word of encouragement for the followers of Jesus to hear. In that culture, in those days, material wealth was believed to be a sign of God's blessing and approval of a person. It's even that way to some degree in our own day. But here is Jesus saying something very different. He says the blessed, happy, fortunate, favored by God people are the poor in spirit, those who are destitute and desperate for God's rescue and provision. Our material wealth or lack of it is not an indicator of God's favor upon us. He looks at the heart. Those of you today who have a tremendous lack in your life and insufficiency that you can't overcome are encouraged to go to the Lord with your poverty of spirit. He will welcome you. He will share the riches of his kingdom with you. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed, happy, fortunate are those who mourn. This life can break our hearts in countless ways causing us to mourn and weep. 
sin in our own life that continually tears us down and destroys the things that we truly love. Sin in this world that causes so much suffering and pain. Rejections, lost opportunities, broken dreams, conflicts, divisions, failures, disease, death. The list is longer than we want to think about. As followers of Jesus, we have the biggest reasons for rejoicing even in this life, but we also have the biggest reasons for weeping because we have an understanding of what the Lord hopes for the human race and how far from it we are. Humanity is a heartbreak. The promised blessing is they will be comforted. The promise of this beatitude looks back at the prophecy that's spoken through Isaiah in Isaiah 61.1. The Messiah is speaking through the prophet and says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. The Apostle Paul, in the opening words of his second letter to the church of Corinth, he gives us a beautiful reminder of who the Lord is, the comfort that He gives to His people in this life, and the beautiful purpose that that comfort can serve not only in our own life, but in the lives of others that we intersect with. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Let us share the comfort that we are receiving from the Lord with others who also need comfort. One day, all that breaks our hearts in this life and leaves a bitter taste in our mouth and robs our life of peace is going to be replaced with the Lord's comfort and joy. Revelation 21.1 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice, a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And oh, we look forward to that day. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed, happy, fortunate are the meek. 
A meek person is not the timid, spineless weakling that might come to your mind when you hear the word meek. Instead, this word means one who is humble, gentle, not aggressive, and who is trusting in the Lord. There's an illustration of meekness in the book of Isaiah where the nature of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, is described that I think helps us get hold of this. Isaiah 42, 2, it says, He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's meekness, this gentle thoughtful, careful manner that looks to the Lord as their advocate. And the promised blessing is they will inherit the earth. What the meek will not take and cannot take by their own strength and assertion, the Lord will give to them. They trust in the Lord to bring about what He wills rather than trying to make things happen on their own. The idea here is similar to what is found in the very first beatitude we looked at, the poor in spirit. There's a humbleness that depends upon the Lord and looks to the Lord as their defender. Verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed, happy, fortunate are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are those whose great desire is for a relationship of obedience and trust in the Lord. How often my heart is sickened by my own disobedience and lack of trust in the Lord. The words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 often come to mind when I think about this. In Romans 7, verse 15 says, I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do I do not do, but what I hate I do. And then down in verse 21, it says, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, some take this beatitude to be referring to those who long for God's righteousness to be established throughout the earth, to see the kingdom of God fully realized here. And the promised blessing is they will be filled. In other words, it is going to happen. I will not always be like this. I'm going to be finally like Jesus Christ. And the day is surely coming when Jesus will be king over all and his righteousness will fill the land. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed, happy, fortunate are the merciful. Mercy is showing compassion and kindness and forgiveness to another regardless of whether they deserve it or not. It's an aspect of love and grace. And the promised blessing is they will be shown mercy. The Lord will show mercy to those who show mercy. James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. 
Luke 6.37, Jesus taught this. He says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Be generous with your mercy. And it will come back to you as well. In verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed, happy, fortunate are the pure in heart. The pure in heart are those who are morally clean and undivided in their devotion to God. And the promised blessing is they will see God. The words of Psalm 24 come to mind here in 24.3. The psalmist writes, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, and, who's, and who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. They will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. The promise the Lord has made to us in the new covenant is a new heart, an undivided heart, a pure heart. Ezekiel 11, 19, 36, 26, for example. We are given a new heart, a new nature, when we are born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who makes it possible for us to see God because Jesus Christ is the one who gives us a pure heart. Verse 9, <clears throat> verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed, happy, fortunate are the peacemakers. Peacemakers are those who create peace, establish peace, work for peace, pursue peace, are a source of peace. The Lord Jesus Christ himself is the greatest peacemaker of all. He gave his life to make peace between us and God. And we have no excuse to be any other than a peacemaker too. And the promised blessing is they will be called children of God. Those who are peacemakers will be called children of God. Peacemakers behave like God. They walk in the footsteps of God. They share the character of God. They are the sons and the daughters of God. Now you may have noticed that these beatitudes are all interconnected with one another. If one is present in our life, the others will also be present in our life. An example here, for example, is that if you are poor in spirit, you will also be meek and merciful and a peacemaker. They all are interconnected with each other and interdependent upon each other. They're all like facets of a single whole. Finally, Verse 10 says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We talked quite a bit about persecution just a few weeks ago in our studies of 1 Peter and 2 Peter. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on this particular uh, 
topic today. It says, blessed, happy, fortunate are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. And the promised blessing is, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I want us to notice that this is the same promised blessing that is given in the first beatitude in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus brackets all of these beatitudes with the same promised blessing. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. To be with the Lord under his love and his protection and his provision forever with Jesus as our king. This is the tremendous blessing of all blessings for us to be in relationship with him forever. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In closing, I want to read these Beatitudes again. And if you're a follower of Jesus, as you listen to them, I want you to personalize them as if Jesus is speaking to you. These are his words of encouragement to you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your good words. We thank you that you have preserved them for us through Matthew and his book. And we thank you that you have protected the book that he wrote all of these centuries so that we can read them in our own time, the words that you spoke some 2,000 years ago. We thank you, Lord, for doing that for us. I pray, Lord, that these words would be truly an encouragement and, an, and a comfort for us this week as we reflect on your goodness, Lord, and all that you have done for us and what we have to look forward to, that we will be and are part of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Oh, what a just incredible thing that we have and we have to hope and look forward to, Lord. Bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen.